Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Let's see if I have this thing on. All right. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We just sang a song that has a deep irony in it, in my opinion. Nothing in this world lasts forever, so just give me Jesus. But you know what the text tells us? That with Jesus, he gives us all things freely. And so when we say, just give us Jesus, in fact, give us Jesus and with him, all good comes with him. What a blessing it is to be known by Christ, to know him, but yes, but to be known by him. That's the glorious, beautiful truth that we find expressed so, so frequently in the book of 1 Peter. Well, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 12. You'll notice that I've labeled this navigating culture as a sojourner. Navigating culture, that's a hard thing, isn't it? One of the things I've discovered as the Lord has given me the opportunity to look through the history books of the Christian church is that throughout the entirety of world history, not only including when the church existed, but even before the church existed, people of faith have always had a difficulty trying to navigate how we are to react to a culture that differs from our own. And there have always been differing answers to this question. And if you're of the scholarly type, perhaps you read a guy named Niebuhr, and he talked about Christ against culture, Christ with culture, the Christ of culture, and the Christ in conflict with culture. I, I think we can navigate and, and narrow these down to really three options that in the history of Christianity we have seen played out in relation to how we are to relate to the world that sits around us. And in 1 Peter, I think we're going to find that there is one way that is the scriptural way, and Peter's going to draw our attention to that today. But let's think about, let's put in our mind a category, a grid, if we would, concerning how we could potentially relate to culture. And there are three ways that this has happened in the past. The first is to abandon culture. And you notice I have this little picture there. Uh, that's because that's very similar, at least in my opinion, to what the Amish might look like. The Amish have taken the tack, and in, you know, it's very hard to speak broadly about the Amish because the Amish have differing groups, and those differing groups have different belief systems. But certainly at one point, the Amish system was a break-off of Christianity, and they believed that the best way in which they could engage their culture was to completely abandon it. There was no hope in it. it. To be in culture, to be in the world, would necessarily taint you. You would get dirty just by being in the dirty culture. And so they determined that what they would do is they would walk away from the culture. There's a problem with that. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I didn't take you out of the world, uh, but I, I brought you into the world. And, and he says to the Father, Lord, I've not asked you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them while they are in the world. So we can't abandon the culture. This is not what Scripture calls us to. It's not what Peter, First Peter is going to call us to. Because it would be easy, wouldn't it? Just think about the context of First Peter. Here are these people who have been rejected by the world. And so the easiest thing is to say, all right, well, if that's what you're going to do, then let's just move to the mountains. Let's establish our own communities, and we'll do just fine. Of course, if you, if you know Anatolia, the, the location in which Peter's writing to, this was a very live option for them. They could have done it, but they choose not to. And there's a reason for that. That's not what God's called us to. 
There's the second response that sometimes happens, and that is to simply embrace the culture. And unfortunately, we have seen this happen within various churches and various whole groups of churches that instead of standing true to biblical standards of morality, instead of standing true to what the scriptures teach, over time they begin to wander. And, and it's, it's not all that surprising, but progressive groups, and that's what I'll, I'll say, this is the progressive response, Progressive groups tend to always look, the, look like the culture in which they live. And so it is that there have been Christian groups who at one time taught against things like homosexuality, but today are fully embracing homosexuality. And what changed? Did the scripture change? The scripture didn't change. So what changed? Well, it was the culture around them. And they began to feel the tension. And so how do you resolve the tension? You capitulate. You give in. You say, all right, well, if that's the way the culture is going, then we're going to accept that and we're going to move that direction. Well, what happens over time when you begin to make small decisions like that, they lead to bigger decisions and they lead to bigger decisions. And all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you look nothing like, look no different from the world. You don't look like the pages of Scripture anymore. You've redefined everything in the Bible so that it appeals to the modern culture. Let's just be frankly honest. Scripture presents it in such a way that no matter what culture you find yourself in, there's going to be some tension between what God's Word says and that particular culture. Now, there are going to be some cultures in which that tension is much more livid. It's, it's much more evident and on the surface. But there are other cultures in which... Maybe it's a little more hidden, but it's there. You see, the kingdom is not going to be established on this earth before the Lord Jesus returns. And then there will be a culture in which we can embrace fully biblical values and the culture we live in. So what does that leave us to? If we can't abandon the culture, and if it would be unbiblical to embrace the culture, where does that leave us? And I, I'm just going to label it this. I'm not sure it's the best label, but it is one that helps us to think about how to best engage with our culture and navigate culture. What do we mean by navigating culture? I think this is the biblical response, and I think it's what Peter's telling us to do in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 12. So turn your attention there if you would. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Here's how he begins. Beloved, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First Peter 2 is actually a turning point in the book of First Peter. The first whole section of the book, Peter has been defining for us what it means to live as an elect exile, and especially to revel in, to glory in all of the benefits and blessings of redemption. 2.11 to 12, Peter makes a turn in the passage, and now he again addresses us. He says, beloved, remember 
You are exiles and strangers. So if, in fact, you are exiles and strangers, what does that mean? Now, let's remember for just a moment what he has just taught us in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He's just said, you, talking about the church, are a holy nation. You are a people called out for his possession. You are priests of God, a kingdom of priests even. And what he's doing is he's separating us from humanity general and saying, you are a distinct people. You are my people. And though you may continue to reside in a place like the United States of America, you must now think of that as your secondary home. Because your primary home is no longer here on this earth. He reminds us of this identity by means of this uh, phrase he's going to use in just a second, exiles and strangers. But before we get there, I, I want us to think of ourselves this way. I've got a picture up on the screen of a guy named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a, uh, was a missionary from the last century, responsible for thousands of missionaries going into China, into mainland China. Most of the missionaries at the time of Hudson Taylor did not go into the mainland of China. They only went to the coastal cities, but he went into the heart of China. Not only that, but he called upon many to come with him. He was successful in a way that so many were not. And the reason he was successful is actually displayed powerfully in this picture. Does Hudson Taylor look in this picture like an Englishman? In his, in his time, he certainly absolutely did not. So why does he look like that? It's because he knew that he was going into a different culture. He was called by God to abandon his culture, to go into a new culture and to embrace their good values while rejecting their evil values. And you know, all the other missionaries, they kept looking like Westerners. And they had a hard time finding any success. But Hudson Taylor went in, and he respected the people for who they were. He respected their culture. He began to live like them. He ate like them. Everything like them. And they began to respect him. And when they respected him, they began to respect the message that he brought. And I'm going to suggest to you that Hudson Taylor then serves as a powerful example of what God is calling us to. Do you remember, we've been called as a holy nation. We are a distinct people. And we've been called out of the world to display the fame of the kingdom that is to come. And to be representatives of him. But in order to do that, Peter's going to tell us we've got to do two things. We've got to abandon sinful ways. The sinful ways that used to define our lives. And second, we've got to embrace good, positive cultural values, even among the people in whom we're found. Well, again, the real basis for me saying this comes in this, this point. You are a missionary. And I think this is the first point we have to understand. We are all, to a, to a certain degree, missionaries. Now, I need to pause and say there is a distinction between those who are called to separate themselves from this land, to go to a foreign con cultural context. So I'm not trying to wash out and water out the idea of a missionary here. But at the same time, I do think that the concept of a missionary is a really helpful one for us to understand our placement today. 
Because notice what Peter does in this passage. He calls us sojourners and exiles. You see that in 2.11. He says, beloved, as sojourners and exiles. Do you remember that language? Because if you go back to 1.1, notice what he said here. Here is when he's opening the letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Now, it was a long time ago. I know it seems like yesterday, but a long time ago that you first invited me to come preach. And I began here in 1 Peter chapter 1. So it's been a while since we visited the idea of sojourners and exiles. And because Peter brings it back up, I think it's healthy for us to think about it again. You remember this actually comes directly from the Old Testament, Genesis 23. This language of sojourner, exile, these two words are the exact same word that come directly from Genesis. And here's Abraham. Abraham arose from beside his dead wife, spoke to the Hittites. He said, I'm a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some of your property for a burial site so I can bury my dead. What exactly is happening in this passage? Do you remember that Abraham was actually from Ur of the Chaldees, quite a distance from the promised land. But God called him out of the promised land, or out of Ur of the Chaldees, and said, go to this place in which I'm going to give you as a possession. But he also told him, listen, I'm going to give it to you as a possession, but it's going to be 420 years until you can take possession of it. Well, of course, Abraham's not going to be alive in 420 years, but he knows that it's going to be for his children after him. When his wife dies, and he's still in the land, but he doesn't own the land, he comes to the people of the land and he says, right now I am a foreigner and stranger. This land is not mine. Well, 420 years later, God leads Moses to take the people out of Egypt, back into the promised land, to take the land for themselves. And and one arises, his name is King David, and he rules the land with justice and power. And yet, here are the very words of David in Psalm 39. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as a foreigner and a stranger as all my ancestors were. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Here he is in the promised land. In the land in which Abraham had to say, I don't have a land here. I'm still a stranger and a foreigner. I'm still not feeling at home in this place. And David conquers the land. It is the promised land given to the people of Israel. And yet he says, I'm still a stranger and foreigner. And do you know what that means? That means even at the height of the Davidic dynasty in which the Mosaic law was being held up, it still wasn't the kingdom. It still wasn't the place. And if we could reverse time, and you could say, Tim, we could plant you today in the Davidic dynasty, or not necessarily in the line, but but we could put you in that kingdom right now. Would you want to go? I'd say no. I actually enjoy my place here in the church. But really, if you could take me, go ahead and plant me in the future, in the real kingdom, because that's what I'm waiting for. And here, then, is what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 11. And you know Hebrews 11. This is the passage in which 
Uh, it's the hall of faith. It's the people of God throughout all generations who have shown faith to God. And here's what Hebrews says about them. These all died in faith. That is, they maintained their faith. But notice this. They did not receive the things promised. Did you know that you have faith right now and you also haven't received the things promised? You've received some of them. But not everything promised. It's still coming. And he says this. But they saw them and greeted them from afar. It's almost like he's saying they saw them from a distance. They greeted them. They said, yes, you are mine. But they could not have them. They acknowledged that they were, and these are the words, strangers and exiles on the earth. And then the author of Hebrews tells us what this means. He says, people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, he's saying, if they wanted to go back, they could have gone back. But they didn't. As it is, they desired a better country. And why is it better? Because it's a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has, and notice these last words, prepared for them a city. And this is the exact same hope we have. And when Peter says to us, beloved, strangers, and exiles, what he's saying to you today is you have joined the caravan of those from all generations prior. And if the Lord tarries, generations to come who cannot find a resting place here, whose hope is somewhere else. It's in a heavenly kingdom in which we long for and wait for. So then what do we do? Because this is what Peter's getting at. He's not just saying you're strangers and exiles, but now he's saying, okay, if you are that and you are, then what do you do? How are we supposed to live in the midst of a, of a place that, to some degree, we just don't feel at home with? Well, let me draw a couple of implications from this identity, and then we'll address how Peter tells us we ought to live. So the first implication is this. You are now a foreigner. You're a foreigner. You live here in the United States. And, you know, in my, in my own case, at the age of 20 years old, the Lord in his grace saved me. And at that moment, I went from being a member of the kingdom of this world to a member of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that kingdom isn't here. I want to be clear about that. We're awaiting that. But, but we've been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, as the apostle Paul tells us. I changed allegiances at that moment. And in the same way, every one of us who have embraced Christ are now foreigners in the world we used to call home. Which means a couple of things. One, you should find the actions of people around you strange. You know, I mean, we, we, we think it's weird that, oh, how could the world think this way? Well, they're the world. Right? They don't have the hope that you have. Uh, they're, they're not going to live the way you are. Just think about it this way. If this world was everything, everything, there was no world to come. Wouldn't you live your life differently? And so, I actually think we should find the, the actions of the people of this world strange. But the flip principle is the same. The people around you should find your actions strange. They should think you're a little bit different too. 
because you're, you don't have the same hope they do. It's like if you're ever watching somebody play a video game and there are multiple ways of playing a video game. Maybe one person is playing it so that he could get to the conclusion of the game as fast as he can. There are people who do these speed runs of video games. If you've ever watched YouTube, it's, it's crazy. And so, th so they want to beat a game as quickly as possible. Another person wants to get everything in the game they possibly can. Do you know if you watch those two people playing, you almost think they're not playing the same game? You know why? Because they have different purposes for playing. They've got a different goal in mind as they're going along. And do you know what the scripture is telling us? Is that you, if you're a believer, if you've been, if embraced Christ and you have a hope that endures to generations to come, then your life as you live it out in this life should actually look a little different than the life of somebody else who lives here. Because you've got a different goal. You've got a different end game in mind. So you're a foreigner. People should find, we should find their actions strange, they should find ours strange. And I think the final thing we ought to recognize is that that actually means that our life is going to be challenging. As uh, I've been teaching through in the Sunday school that uh, I teach at, I've been teaching through First Peter as well there. And uh, we have a couple of, of people in our ABF who come from various different cultures, and they've talked about the difficulty of living in the United States when you're just from a totally different culture. There, there, are, there are tensions, there are, there's hardships, and I think Peter's telling us actually that living like this is going to be difficult. Why? Well, notice verse 11, notice how he begins it. He says, beloved, beloved. Now, if you've got the NIV, it probably says, if I know it says, it says, dear friends. I'm not sure that's the best translation in this case. Because all he says is loved ones. Here's the question. Who loves us? The NIV is translating it as though Peter himself loves them. And that probably is true. But I think there's something deeper here. I think it's saying this. Saints... Those loved of God, you are called to be strangers and foreigners. And in my mind, what Peter's doing then, again, is he's highlighting that you are elect exiles. You are beloved. And yet, you feel this estrangement in the world in which you're experiencing. You are indeed loved. So... If this is true of us, if this is our identity, then how do we live in a world in which we find ourselves foreigners and strangers? The first point that Peter tells us after indicating that we're missionaries, that's the, that's the governing illustration I'm going to make. We are missionaries. We are called to live in the midst of a culture we no longer find our own and to represent God to that culture. The first thing we, ought, we have to do is reject the evil in our culture. Reject the evil in our culture. Notice what he says to us here in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, you might say to me, well, your point here is reject the evil in your culture, but the passage says reject the evil in your own flesh. But I think those two things go together. What is it that guides our culture today? It's the desires of the flesh. It's the desires of humanity. It's the desires that are natural to us. 
So here's what God does when he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says, the things that you used to desire, the things you used to live for, the passions of your flesh, you can't do those anymore. You can't live like that anymore. You have to abandon all that. Now, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because they are, in fact, passions of our flesh. And what that means is that they are natural to us. Now, I bet when we first read that passage, abandon the passions of your flesh, I think the immediate first thing that our minds go to are the sexual passions. But do you know what the scripture actually says are the lusts of the flesh? It says it right here in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to this. It's quite fascinating. What are the lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh? Here's what he says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Everybody knows what the acts of the flesh are. And he says, first, sexual immorality. Well, you say, well, that proves my point, right? Well, let's keep moving. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. And I would suggest that those first three are along that line. But notice he goes on, because that isn't the fullness of what the lusts of the flesh are. Idolatry and witchcraft. And we might say today, well, our culture isn't really all that inundated with idolatry and witchcraft. And I would simply say, look deeper. Idolatry is the replacement of the God who is, the God who has made mankind and inserted his knowledge in their heart, and instead of worshiping him, they, they cling to something else. It doesn't matter what it is. That becomes the idol. It's the idol of the heart, according to the book of Ezekiel. Idolatry, witchcraft, going on. And this is, this is, oh boy, this is where it starts hitting home. Because we might say, yeah, okay, I mean, I'm okay so far, looking good. I can abandon those, but notice what he says. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Let me just back that up again here just for a moment. Peter's telling us, abandon the passions of the flesh, the things that are natural to fallen humanity. And then when, when we find out what these passions of the flesh are, Paul says they're evident, they're obvious. Yeah, they're the sexual things, but then they're all the socially destructive things that are so natural to humanity dissensions, hatred in the heart. You begin to despise someone. Jesus says, even your words, when you, when you use negative words towards someone, he says, you better start looking at your heart because deep down there's probably hatred and where there's hatred, there's murder. It's serious. Discord. Discord means you're, you're not getting along. There's, there's tension. There's social uh, pressures. You see the same thing with the dissensions and the factions. And this all comes from selfish ambition. Thankfully, that never happens in the church. <laughs> what a blessing, right? Or maybe it does. Thankfully, that never happens in a Christian home, right? And yet we look and we say, oh, Lord, this to a certain degree that I am uncomfortable with, still is evidenced in my own life. I, I just think of that selfish ambition. 
and I'm looking into a mirror. I'm just saying, Lord, help me. And I see the dissensions, the fits of rage. In your home, are there fits of rage? This is not consistent with what God has called you to in Christ. Is there envy? Do you long after the things in the life that other people have? As though God has somehow been unfaithful to you because you don't have the things that someone else has. Forgetting holy. That we just sing a song that says, I can go without all the things of this world, but give me Jesus. And then we walk out of here and we say, boy, I really would like all those things of this world. You see, when Peter tells us you must abstain from the fleshly passions, our immediate thought is, okay, I'm safe there. But no, look at what these things are. Look deeply in your heart. And here's what he's saying. Church, you have to abandon these things. You see, one of the things we'll get to in a little bit in 1 Peter, we already touched on it, but we're going to touch on it again, is Peter's going to tell us that the evident mark of the church is that we love one another. And I'm telling you right now, love cannot exist where these things exist. They're the very opposite of love. You cannot have love and hatred. You cannot have love and discord. You cannot have love and jealousy. You cannot have love and fits of rage. You cannot have love and selfish ambition. You cannot have love and dissensions. You cannot have love and factions. You can't have love and envy. In fact, you can't have love and sexual immorality and purity and debauchery. Oh, so often I hear, oh, yeah, well, that happened, but it's because we love each other. No, it's not. It isn't. There's no love there. That's lust. There's no love there. And what Paul or what Peter calls us to is to love one another. And this means that as sojourners, as those who've been called out of this world, we can no longer associate with these things. Notice the condemning language Paul uses at the end of Galatians 5. He says, look, if this is who you are, if this defines you, he says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know why? This comes back to what he's just said. You've been called out of the world to establish an assembly of people, an assembly of people who are showing what the kingdom of God is going to be like. But if this is what you look like, then you're not looking like the kingdom of God. You are not representing the kingdom well to a lost and dying world. But that is what we are to be. That is who we are to be. He then indicates the reason, and this goes right exactly with what Peter says. Here's the reason why you have to battle against these things, because they wage war against your soul. Wouldn't it have been awesome? Wouldn't it have been awesome if when God saved you, he took the man of flesh, the woman of flesh, and just completely cut him or her off. Wouldn't that have been awesome? And how many of your lives that happened? He doesn't do that. Do you know what he does instead? He allows this battle to go on within our souls. And we might ask the question why, and someday you might ask the Lord that himself. But I'll just give you at least one reason, I think. Because he gets glory when we fight. He gets glory when our selfish ambition arises, when we want to be 
in dissension with one another because we want what someone else wants and we want to fight for it and we say, I'm going to love instead. I'm not choosing that path because that's, that's who I used to be, but that's not who I am in Christ. And there's this battle. Here's the encouraging and yet discouraging thing at the same time. This battle was happening in your soul. And you get to choose what happens with it. Isn't it the weirdest experience of life? And Maybe I talked about this before, but I, I find it odd that you can have an argument with yourself. Nobody else is involved. It's you and yourself. And yet here you are, and you're casting both sides of this. And on the one side, it's all selfish ambition, and, and you know it, but you're trying to justify it a little bit because you kind of want it, right? And yet there's something deep down inside you. It's the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. It's the truth that's been dug into your heart and your mind that keeps saying, no, you know that's not right. And so you fight, you battle. That's the battle. That's the war that's going on inside you. And it is a war against your soul. So what do we do when we live in the midst of a culture that's distinct from us, that we have been drawn out of? Well, as missionaries of God, that is, those who are representing God, we cannot give in to those things. We must be distinct from our world by not giving in to the passions which guide our world. Instead, we are to be distinct by warring against those passions. There's a second thing he tells us. As missionaries, embrace the good in your culture. Now, this is the difficult part in which we face because no culture is so bad that there isn't some good in it. And there's a reason for that. Romans chapter 2 tells us that with the image of God that God planted in man, he also planted a law within man's heart. And despite man often wanting to escape that law, he knows it. It's deep down. He can't get rid of it. And so in every culture, there are good things that we can embrace, and in fact, we should embrace. Now, I don't have the time to work through the rest of this because we're going to be doing it in the weeks to come, but I want to suggest to you that what Peter does in the next number of passages is detail ways in which we can embrace the good in our culture. In fact, the, the passage suggests to us that we are to keep our conduct Notice it in verse 11 here, chapter 2, 11. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, but then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here, here's his point. The Gentiles should look at your conduct and say, that person is an honorable man. That person is an honorable woman. These people are honorable people. Now, I want you to note one thing. I, I could just say it in passing, but I want I to dig a little bit deeper into it. Notice who he called us. He called us Gentiles. Now, you might think, well, of course, we're all Gentiles. But he's actually distinguishing us from the other Gentiles. He's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Do you know why he's doing that? Because he's now created a whole new people. We're no longer Gentiles. We're not Jews. But we're this third thing, this thing that actually we call the church, called out by God. So first, we are, we are no longer Gentile. Second, 
He says that we have to live honorably. Well, what does it mean to live honorably? It means to, to live in such a way that our world looks and says, those are good people. So how do we do that? Well, you'll notice in 2.13, Peter addresses how we, are to, how we are to live in relation to the nation state. And we'll talk about that next week, uh, right after the election. That might be a good time to talk about that. <laughs> so 2.13 to 17, he talks about uh, government. What does it look like as a believer in Christ who is a part of a different nation to live among this nation? How do we relate to the governors, to the, to the police, to all that sort of thing? Well, he's going to tell us. And then he talks about servants with their masters. We don't have slavery in this culture, and that's a great thing. But I think that there is application to the way in which we present ourselves within our workplace. How should we act in the workplace, and how should that bring glory to God? In chapter 3, 1 to 7, he then relates, what do we do within our marriages? How do Christian marriages reflect God in this world? So what he's going to do in the series to come, in the, in the passages to come, and I'm, I'm looking forward to working through this, is he says, here's how to live honorably as a husband. Here's how to live honorably as a wife. Here's how to live honorably as a citizen of a foreign nation. So we not only reject the values of our culture, we also embrace the good that we can within that culture. But the fourth point, and this is an important one, don't miss it, as a missionary, expect hostility and opportunity. Notice with me in verse 12. He says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Let's just pause there for a moment. That's odd, isn't it? Peter's just said, listen, here's what I want you to be done with. I want you to be done with all those passions of the flesh, which are really completely antisocial behaviors. Love people. Even coming back to Jesus, love your enemies. And then he says, on top of that, embrace within your culture all of the good that your culture has and, and live it out with gusto. And you say, okay, well, if we do that, then our culture is going to be totally fine with us, right? Our culture is going to say, oh, well, they're good people. So nothing to see here. But you know what Peter says is, no, no, that's actually not how it's going to work. Because no matter how much we try, there are certain things in our culture that we cannot embrace, that we cannot go along with. And despite how good of behavior we have when we reject such things, especially such things that are at the heart of our present culture. People look at us and say, bigots, hateful. And maybe you're unaware, but there are a lot of people who think that this is a meeting of hateful people. A lot of people. I mean, they would say that this is one of the bastions of hatred in the United States of America today. You couldn't find more hateful people than are sitting in this congregation. And of course, we're looking around at one another and I'm like, I don't see that at all. And we shouldn't see that at all. 
But our world's going to see that. Because you know what we're doing? We're having to stand up and we're having to say, you know, we can't go that direction. We should not go that direction. In fact, you should not go that direction. And the moment we turn there, our culture's not happy. Because to the degree that we're not going along, we're actually stemming the tide. We're preventing our culture from progressing in the direction that they want, to the degree that they want. I do wonder what our culture would look like, our, the United States of America, if there were not uh, a significant number of true believers among us. Where would our culture be? But you see, we are the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus says. And you know what salt was used in the first century for? It was a preservative. And we are, to some degree, preserving the good of God within this culture. And there are some people who absolutely hate that. So... There's going to come hostility. We are going to be evil spoken of. And yet notice what Peter goes on to say. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are antisocial behaviors. Embrace everything you can within your culture that is good and honorable because there are going to be those things. Because God made these people. There's going to be good. So embrace it. Live it. And here's why you should do that. So that when they inevitably say evil things about you, they may nevertheless, notice this last line, see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you know where Peter's getting that from? It's from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Here's what Jesus said about us. You, this is right after he just said, you're the salt of the earth right? You're this preservative, but you're also something else. You're not just preserving, but you're actually calling people to light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but set it on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, notice this, See your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Did you notice what Peter just said? That they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. There are some who debate exactly what this day of visitation is. Some believe that it's the day of God's judgment. And it is quite possible that that's what he's saying. But since he's quoting Jesus, I think he's saying the same thing Jesus is saying. And that's this. You're the salt of the earth, the preservative, but you're also the light of the world. You're the hope of the world. You are the one to shed light on darkness. People hate that, according to John. And yet, at the same time, the shedding of the light on the darkness exposes it as darkness. And it exposes the goodness, the light itself. And when that happens, when we show forth good deeds, do you know who gets ultimately the glory for that? God does. Do you know why? Because if somebody asks me, Tim, why were you a totally unproductive member of society until you were 20 years old and you were a hateful person who was so selfish and so full of yourself that you couldn't imagine it? And then you were slightly better than that later. <laughs> All right, so what happened between that point and the next point? How did you get from one to the other? In fact, just yesterday, uh, or two days ago, I don't know, just recently. Um, I, I was talking to somebody who knew me back in high school. 
And I kind of don't like those conversations. Um, because I just remember who I was, and it's almost like I'm just ashamed to meet these people. Because, but at the same time, I rejoice because I'm not who I was. And if they said, why, Tim? What's different about you? You know what I'm not going to say? Well, you know, I went on this 20-part plan. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know what? Jesus changed me. And you know, he made me from a hateful person to a loving person. He made me from an unproductive member of society to hopefully at least partially productive. He's done everything good that you see in my life. Praise be to him. And so it is when we live among our world, we should expect hostility. It's going to come. But we should also expect opportunity because here, here's it. If you're abstaining from the passions of the flesh and you are pursuing good to the degree that you can and people say Christians are bigots, Christians are hateful, but they live next door to you and you're the most gracious person they've ever met. You're the most loving person that they've ever experienced. They'll feel this discordance and they'll say, I keep hearing you're really hateful, but uh, you're not. So what's that about? And that opens doors of opportunity. Could I, could I end with one illustration? The guy on the right here is Truett Caffey. I think you've got the same thing as I do. Okay, the guy on the right is Truett Caffey. And I, I think I mentioned a long while ago when I first started this, this story, but I wanted to read a little bit of it to you. The guy on the left is a guy by the name of Shane Windmeyer. And this comes from... Uh, uh, from, from an article that Shane wrote in, uh, in a very leftist uh, newspaper. He's a nationally recognized LGBTQ leader in higher education, best-selling author, executive director of Campus Pride. He's with Truett Cathy. Anybody know who he is? He is the founder of the best chicken sandwich that's ever been made. <laughs> So, so he's, he's the founder of Chick-fil-A. And if you remember a number of years back, he was in, in some deep trouble, or at least that's how everyone portrayed it, because he uh, donated quite a bit of money towards, uh, towards organizations that were pushing for a biblical definition of marriage. And the guy on the left there was writing against him. He was, he was picketing uh, Chick-fil-A's. In fact, they successfully made it so that they couldn't establish a Chick-fil-A in, in a certain section of New York. So they were picketing and all these things. Well, Shane wrote this article, and this is what, this is what he says. He says, I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded all-American epicenter of college football at the Chick-fil-A Bowl next to Dan Caffey, or, or next to Truett and Dan Caffey here as his personal guest. It was among the most unexpected moments of my life. Yes, after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, I'm coming out in a new way as a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and COO, Dan Cathy. And I'm nervous about it. I've come to know him in Chick-fil-A in ways that I would not have thought possible when I first started hearing about it from LGBT students about their concerns over the chicken chain's giving practices. For many, this news of friendship might be shocking. After all, I'm a 40-year-old gay man and a lifelong activist for equality. 
I'm the founder of the executive director of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for LGBT and ally college students. And just seven months ago, our organization advanced a divisive political group against uh, Chick-fil-A. I've spent some, quite some time being angry at and deeply distrustful of Kathy and Chick-fil-A. If he had his way, my husband and I would have never been married. Why was I now standing next to him at one of the most popular football showdowns? How could I dare to think I have a relationship with a man and a company that have advocated against who I am? Who would take apart my family in the name of traditional marriage, whose voice and views represent exactly the opposite of those of the students for whom I advocate every day? Dan is the problem, or Truett, the son. And Chick-fil-A is the enemy, right? Like most LGBT people, I was provoked by his public opposition to marriage equality and his company's problematic giving history. I had the background in history on him, so I thought and had my own preconceived notions about who he was. I knew this character. No way he did not. No way did he know me. That was my view. But it was flawed. On August 10th, the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from him. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business con contact. I took the call with great caution. Was he going to tear me apart? That's what he's going to do, right? His questions and a series of deeper conversations led to a number of in-person meetings with him and the representatives from Chick-fil-A. He had never before had a dialogue with any member like this. It was awkward at times, but always genuine and kind. Through all this, he and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, he embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. We learned about each other as people with opposing views. Throughout the conversations, he expressed his sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. My relationship with him is the same, though he is... I'm sorry. In the end, he says this. In the end, he expanded his world without abandoning it. It's not about eating at a chick certain chicken sandwich. It's about sitting down at a table together and sharing our views as human beings, engaged in real, respectful, civil dialogue. Dan would probably, and Truett, would probably call this act biblical definition of hospitality. I call it human decency. So long as we're at the same table and talking, does it matter what we call it or what we eat? Do you know what I really enjoyed about reading about that article was? Here's a man who, who's known for his opposition to gay marriage. And yet, he calls someone who's on the opposite side of that. And he says, I would like to get to know you. I'd like to hear how things are going, and I'd like to share with you something. I'd like to define why it is that I'm not on your side. You see, 
He never capitulated. He never gave in. He wasn't like the Amish or the response of stepping back and saying, you know, people who hold that position, I can't have anything to do with them. But he also didn't embrace that position. He didn't come in hand in hand and say, you know, we're all the same. You know, we should just embrace one another and and it's all good. No, you know what he did? He showed love. Even in the midst of disagreement, he stayed true to his Christian convictions and showed love. How do we live in the midst of a culture and a world that has totally changed? How do we live as missionaries in one sense? We've been called out of the world, but we've been called to minister to the world, to display the love of Christ to them. How do we do it? You can't do it by finding out that somebody moved into your neighborhood who holds the perspectives you don't hold and say, all right, well, I'm not going over there. You know what it is? You go over there. You say, hi, I'm Tim. I'd love to get to know you. And you begin to form relationships so that when they hear things about you from the news and from all, all else, they say, okay, but that's not the person I know. And you know, I don't know what ultimately is going to happen to this gentleman, Shane Winmeyer. I don't know if the Lord will one day use the Kathy's example to draw him to Christ. But I'll say this. He wrote this. in a a magazine that is totally anti-Christian. And do you know what it represented, in my opinion? Was it showed that Christians can maintain their values, maintain their beliefs, never budge one inch, and yet love the world that surrounds them. So here's my call to you this week. How can you take the good news of Jesus Christ even to someone who strongly differs from you, how can you somehow this week show love to, a political, politi- to the person who has that political sign in their yard and you say, we probably don't have anything in common. You have humanity in common. You have the sin nature in common. And you have the only hope in common. That is Jesus. And so if we're not going, if we're not going to those who are our neighbors, What hope do they have? But you see, Peter says, we can't just be called out of the world. We're not to to escape. We can't just embrace the world. What we have to do is we have to live in the midst of the world, loving the world, eschewing all the things that are negative in our world, embracing all the things that are good in our world, and continually building relationships with others so that we can show the love of Christ. And when they speak against us as evil, when they, when they hear things about us as evil, they might say, okay, maybe that's true of them broadly, but not this guy. There's something different about him. And you say, yes, there is. Could I introduce you to Jesus? Because he's the one who's made me different. Father, I thank you for the opportunity you've given to us to show yourself, to show you to a world. Lord, I don't know why, I I don't understand it, why you have chosen, instead of representing yourself to the world, you have chosen to represent yourself through us. But I do know that that puts a deep and heavy burden upon us to show forth your love, And so I pray that your church here, these saints who sit before me, would take seriously their call to be light 
and salt to this world. Oh, Father, thank you that you've called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let us be a light that is so bright, so glorious that others would say, why are you different? And we might redirect their attention to you, for you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.